to the Tag Your It podcast. I'm Ray Ray. And I'm Dave. And we're joined tonight by Dr. Dudash Buskirk. Hyphenated, right? It's pretty awesome. <laughs> so yeah, we got a special guest in the studio tonight again, and we have live stuff going on. So we didn't do that Saturday, but if you notice on the podcast channels, we have a podcast up that we did Saturday. I posted it up this morning, so we've got that. Uh, but we're here live for the first time in 2020 with our special guest to uh, talk about like what we said uh, we're delivering on our promise. We are going to talk about critical race theory, intersectionality, all those things that have been going on, especially as Southern Baptists. It's very poignant. And so we have uh, Dr. Dudash. Well, with us this evening, um, if you uh, are our listeners or whatever, if you went to the happiness debate that Dave did uh, a couple of years ago, yeah, twenty seventeen. Now yeah, you said we were just figuring that ago. out. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> we've if you're there, this a long time. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're there, or if you were at our uh, morality debate at Glenstone Baptist Church, she that's was right. there. Um, and at our recent debate um, with Dave uh, taking on an inerrancy of Scripture, she was there to talk about be civil, be heard. Um, she's from MSU here in Springfield, Missouri. And so, f- without further ado, since this probably could go long as normal, our podcasts do. Let's just get cut to the chase. Let's talk about critical race theory. Let's talk about intersectionality. But I guess just to um, get this out, I guess before we go, is um, we've got to understand the world we live in as Christians to be able to speak truth, to make disciples. We have to know the people that we're making disciples of and what they view, how they view the world, how they live and all that kind of stuff and not misrepresent them. So tonight we wanted to definitely... Um, Put it out there. What is critical race theory? What's going on in academia? What's going on in the real world uh, with this, uh, what I call a worldview or a framework, which we'll get to that point, but I'm thinking we're all in agreement that it is a framework, it is a worldview um, issue so that we can speak truth um, of scripture into that as disciple makers. So we can't do that without actually understanding where who we're talking to. And so we're not um, going back and forth. Hey, you misrepresented me. I misrepresented you. Fighting, fighting. That's where apologetics usually dies out. So um, we wanted to start this conversation without, you know, a whole lot of pushback um, and all that stuff. We want clarity. So there's not going to be political. They're going right. to not get political and all that kind of stuff. We want facts. What is the deal? Um, again, this is a point in the uh, Southern Baptist Convention because we had Resolution 9. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the universal issue of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's going to go down to the states and be talked about. Um, we want to help uh, the Missouri Baptists understand what this is. Um, that's so, right. Because we're going to be talk- we've already talked about this. And right? so when I first heard Resolution 9 voted on from the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Dr. Askell and uh, Tom Buck discussing some back and forth with Dr. Curtis Woods and even some of the follow-up from Trevin Wax, I began to think about when I was a master's student at Missouri State University and where I first heard of critical race theory, critical theory. Uh, we really didn't talk about intersectionality, but we were kind of hitting on it a little bit yeah, in your not, class. At the time, it wasn't as big. And so I knew exactly who I needed to contact, my professor, uh, Dr. Dudash, who... Uh, taught one of the most difficult classes that I ever took and does expect a lot of her students outstanding lecture and a friend of mine and so Dr. Dudash um, I could say a whole bunch of things about you but kind of share with us just a little bit of your background who you are what you do scholarly wise um, and those things that I think would again establish just an understanding for those who know nothing about critical race theory know nothing about this idea and and who you are and your um, your familiarity and with then you'll ideas. see a bunch of questions on Facebook as to why do you have this person on your show <laughs> <laughs> that's okay that's just we'll that. it. yeah I mean first things first uh, Call me Liz. Okay. Just, yes, just Liz. to make it yes, easier yes, for yes. everybody. Because Dr. Dudash Buskirk is like a mouthful. Um, and never hyphenate your name. <laughs> just learn that lesson now. So, yes, my name is uh, Liz Elizabeth. And I am originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm raised a Yankee and a Catholic, a very strict Catholic at the time. Um, I have, over the course of my studies, moved away from Catholicism, but never away from Christianity. And I get a lot of questions about how is it that I resolve 
solve being a college professor and in the social sciences. So science, I guess, in quotation marks. I don't know if I should do that or not, but um, a social science and also consider myself a, a Christian. And yeah. to me, it's not that hard to do. And one of the ways it's not hard to do is exactly by discussions like the, the ones you have, mm-hmm. um, which is why Be Civil, Be Heard um, is pretty pretty dedicated to having, you know, uh, tag your it and any, anybody else who wants to have a discussion to have a discussion. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't care who it is. Let's, let's have the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because if you don't put it into the public discourse, we all make assumptions. We all make presumptions and we, we don't find our points of agreement, even though we have them. Gotcha. And so it's important to start there. Um, so, what I do is what the reason that I became a college professor was for that exact reason was I wanted to be able to, um, to, to somehow find clarity for people, um, to help them understand the world that they live in, to help them understand the communication phenomenon that they encounter, uh, or I should say phenomena that they encounter. I'm sure it's more than once a day, (laughs) The, the communication phenomena that we encounter. And for me, um, somehow, I guess because of my background, my dad was a district attorney. Um, my, my uncle ran for state representative when I was six, like some things that happened in my life that became about the political, not about the religious. I was like, eh, do whatever you want to do with religion. But with politics, I really wanted to understand why people become a part of that discussion or not. Yeah. Um, at the time, of course, just like we do now, we we're talking about, you know, Generation X not voting, Generation X being lazy. Actually, that's true. Um, I can say that because I'm one of them. I mean, people say that about millennials, and it's just not true. But but Generation X, we definitely were. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, I Gen Xers are still curling up with our Cure music and black and you know, calling for our moms and telling you guys to fix the problem. Um, so I mean, I was living in that world where Generation X was being so criticized the way that millennials have been, um, and I was like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're involved. We're involved. Maybe I don't vote. Well, I mean, I did, but maybe yeah. some of them don't vote. But you know, they're they're every day that we talk, we're mm-hmm. talking about politics every right. day. Yeah. And I did go to John Carroll University, which is a Jesuit institution, and mm-hmm. it was I went through Catholic high school and Catholic grade school, so I have uh, you know essentially f- sixteen years of religious education, not as a as yeah. being a religious person but when you live with the nuns and you live with the brothers um you learn pretty quickly uh about that link between the academy and the everyday religious experience so all of a sudden i found myself in this position of i want to understand communication phenomena uh of how people come together as communities and how they maintain those communities and how they maintain being a part of it or not being a part of it. And we can look at that on the grand scale of like, we're all global citizens, right? Or we can look at that as, you know, for me, national politics is what I look at it as. Um, And when you came into my classroom, we started having a discussion a few times, as have um, a, a lot of theorists during the Enlightenment who were Protestant ministers for the most part, you know, you're reading this every, every, Bi- biography starts with he was a protestant minister you know yeah. um and why was that such a big deal you know and going to luther and going to wesley yeah. and and everybody and i was never interested in how that played out practically in the world but i was interested in why we we were making these distinctions why was that important i mean it's obvious why Luther had his 95 theses, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I've got complaints about the Catholic Church. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, it's obvious why that happened. But then what happened after that? I didn't care. Yeah. Um, and so when you came into my classroom and you were talking about um, Bap- Southern Baptist, yeah. particularly, I was like, Ah, don't do this to me. I know I moved to Southwest Missouri and I know I'm a Yankee, but please don't. Well, and it's an interesting dynamic too because there's not a bunch of 
evangelical, and I had a different background because I came from a seminary. I graduated from a seminary, That's and here right. I was with a theological background and a communication background. Now in a at a state university, that there were not just people from Missouri; there were people from all over the world in that class. That's right, and from various religious backgrounds. And we were, um, and I was like, religions out of this. Yeah, there <laughs> were there were Muslims, there were Sikhs, there yes. were atheists. I mean, that uh, but was by our the class. way, yeah. we had a very good diverse class. Oh yeah, we and I was like. So how, but, so we're just going to leave religious out of religion out of this, and I was like, I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. Because <laughs> for for those of you who don't know, when you teach something like the roots and theoretical underpinnings of persuasion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how do I understand how people become parts of groups? That's persuasion. Um, you kind of you know go back about 2,500 years. You know, to 400 uh, BCE or so. That's about how far back I go. All the way up till now. And depending on which historian you talk to, over half of that is, you know, the medieval period yeah, <laughs> with, yeah. with the Catholic Church. And then after that, you have the Enlightenment with the, the rise of the Protestant, um, you know, the rise of the Protestant religions and, and division. So... I couldn't get out of talking about religion, yeah. and you definitely pushed me. And one of the things, yeah, because I wrote papers on Luther and, yeah, and, and, and Calvin. I learned so much from your papers because that's not my area, yeah. so I never focus. And so I really like it when when students teach me something. Yeah. And you did. I told you that. Thank you. And um, I tell you that all the time. But one of the best discussions I felt like we had um, was one day you looked like I had just blown your mind. I I was like, what? what?" I didn't say anything. I'm just teaching. I was teaching Burke. Gotcha. Yep. And we were talking about the Tower of Babel. Yep, that's right. And I was explaining that essentially Burke, who was raised as a Catholic and had the guilt and all that stuff, and he was raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, just like me. (laughs) We have a kinship. Uh, he went off the rails when he became an alcoholic. I'm not there, but but he he had some ideas that I I very much identify with. Pardon that that pun there, no. uh, but um, I identify with a lot of that because um, I felt what he was describing was you know um, even as a literary critic we throw out all these words, all this language, all these claims. And in doing so, when we try to sort of mix it up and mess it up for people, what we're doing is creating chaos. Mm -hmm. Um, And in order to solve that chaos, we must all speak from the same position, is how we say it now. No different than, I'm going to cause chaos by having them speak different languages and then once you speak all the same language, you're able to be more successful at whatever it is you want to do. And you just look blown away. And I don't think I've ever asked you what, <laughs> what I said. And then I was like, did I just have something in my teeth? Well, well it was because I, I objectively believed in the historical accuracy of Genesis. <laughs> and here we were. And it seems uh, Burke's theory doesn't work without there being an a historically objective belief that that occurred. Well, he didn't speak of it as it was just myth. He, obviously, myth, he would use the language myth, but it sure seemed, at least the way we dealt with it in class and the way you presented it, this is a reality. And that brings us right, I mean, that brings mm-hmm. us full circle right to, where to we're critical learning. race theory. See, look how I and did so that. You did an excellent job. Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> you always liked my segues, too. Yeah, I so. mean, because the one thing I do want to say about that real quick is that, um, you know, I don't like the word myth, yeah, because people think that that means it's not true, yeah. right? The word I use more often than not is mythos. Gotcha. Yeah. That idea that these stories transcend, you know, our idea of is it true or not? Yeah. Because once I tell you that story, it's true. So it really doesn't matter. Although it is true that he did believe it. Yeah. I mean, but it 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 does not matter whether somebody believes in the story of the Tower of Babel. What matters is, is that we understand the lesson that we get from it, right? Mm-hmm. And and utilize it properly, yeah. whatever that means. Okay, there. Why I just not? wanted to say that. Go for it, man. All uh, right. He, he's, Ray Ray's about to take it down. <laughs> no, 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 no. Thank you he's so very much. Good. That he's great. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, that's where we're starting from. <laughs> this is, I mean, this goes to show that we can have a conversation. 
So Absolutely. I hope that people can see that, uh, you know, especially with us, we, we have gotten, um, you guys are hateful. Um, you oh, got, yeah. you know, whenever we disagree, whenever all these things happen. Your dog's coming yeah, in. Yeah, my dog's coming in. But anyway, before I take I care watch. of that, what is critical race theory? Okay, yeah. so <laughs> Let's get I knew to that, that point. you guys were going to ask yep. that question. And so I was thinking in the car on the way up here, I was like, how do I approach that? Because critical race theory is born out of other things. Gotcha. So let me lay some historical background. Yeah, please. And for those of you in the audience who are much better scholars than I am, I apologize for the bastardizations I'm about to perform. <laughs> but for the purposes of this discussion, I think that it's important. You know, yeah. a lot of people who go to church, at least in the Catholic church, they don't care about this academic stuff. They yeah. leave that up to the Jesuits. There's a whole set of people that do that, right? Yeah. But for you, for you all, what I love about it is that you, you have a resolution nine. I mean, yeah. the, that thing's written like a grad school you know, student wrote it for for Congress for legislation. So I'm really mm-hmm. impressed with that. Not that the not that any other religion doesn't. Some do of that. our I just, seminary professors did write. That's that. right. Well, and she was reading it to me in the car again. Uh, my cousin was. And yeah. She's like, I have like an eighth grade reading level. I'm like, no. And she was reading and she missed two words and they were the same two words my grad students missed. I'm like, I think you have a little higher than that. But it is a high level resolution right yeah so let's start from the beginning okay (laughs) yeah let's start from the beginning yeah all right back at you know when we had this modernist movement the idea that everything happens in a progression the idea that everything's linear and the idea that there's a hierarchy Right. Mm -hmm. And however you saw that hierarchy, um, you know, there were people on different rungs of the ladder. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And most people who read literature, um, who wrote literature, who controlled literature came from a certain background, a certain area that included, uh, you know, whether they were born rich or richer, whether they got an education or not, whether they had access to the ability to write, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. literature or to paint a picture art. Right. You don't just I mean, I have great art in my house that I did. Why isn't it selling for $5,000 a piece? You know, there's, there's more to it than that, right? So, but all these things, who we are, where we come from, how much money we have, how we define ourselves fed into what society agreed to put like into those, I don't want to use the word zeitgeist. I'm going to use the word public discourse, okay. right? What mm-hmm. we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. So somebody writes the great American novel. We're all talking about it. It's required reading, Right. Well, it happens to be written by a guy, right? Yeah. Okay. So it's written from that person's perspective who happens to be male, white, older, right? Yeah. And in doing that, what we, which is fine, by the way, great writers, I'm not Mm -hmm. complaining. But in doing that, if that's the only place that we get our public discourse from, what about women People of color, people who are poor, people who don't have exposure to education, or even remember, according to Jesus Christ, religion. Yeah. Right? What what about those people? Because I don't see Mark Twain writing from that perspective. Mm. He may be writing about them, but he's not writing uh, from their perspective. Yeah. And so, during that modern idea of the great American novel, the introduction of characters, the plot, the you know action, the and then the conclusion, you know, the the final act, um, the resolution, all of that is how we worked until about really the 1960s when we started to see like an introduction i think i'm going to say 1960s and you all are going to correct me on that i know and that's okay but that's roughly where i remember it um where we started using words like i (laughs) you know Mm. instead of cause me you know call me ishmael it became Mm. i walked into you know wood or whatever um and you know poetry and narrative and all that i'm putting together by the way um, and so the, these artworks suddenly started to take on an individual perspective. And if artworks take on individual perspective, then why can't I write a book? Well, you're poor, you're a person of color, you're of the wrong religion, you're of the wrong creed, you're of the wrong everything, come from the wrong background, wrong side of the tracks, go check out, you know, um, uh, the great, what's that great book that I love so much, I've forgotten the name of it, about the group of boys. Thank Mm -hmm. you. 
Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm old. Sorry. All right. So The Outsiders, which I love, and you know, is is really a great example of someone writing a book about marginalization, right? Mm. And that key, that word is so important because what it says is that whenever somebody writes from a certain perspective about a certain thing in a certain way, what they're really doing, and this is not a criticism. Well, it is, but not in a bad way. What it is, what they're doing is eliminating all the other perspectives, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not saying that no one else can write. What I'm saying is, who else has that opportunity? Gotcha. So you have someone like myself writing. You're like, oh, well, there's a woman who's writing from her perspective. She might not be writing about that same subject matter, but that's because women don't write on that subject matter. And also, she's a college professor. Well, now, basically, what you've said is, I have to be fairly well off, I have to have an education, I have to be white, and I'm giving you a perspective on something that's completely different, okay? Hmm. So, how do we, so, so a marginalized group always, several marginalized groups always are created whenever we have a group of people who are not necessarily dictating, but in a way are dictating by popularity what is good. What is right? You know, what works? So if on TV, all you ever see are rich white people living in New York City in a really nice apartment after they graduated college and living on a salary from a coffee shop where they work part time (laughs) and you think, I'm going to New York and doing that, you're in for a harsh change in reality. (laughs) If we can accept that, then we need to also accept that whenever we read or encounter a phenomena. Uh, phenomenon that what we're encountering is someone else's interpretation, someone else's perspective. Now, that's not uniquely bad. Mm-hmm. So but if we call that open, like a perspectivistic epistemology, then I would call it ideological. Ideological. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I would call it ideological. Right. That 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 idea also. Sorry. That idea that my ideology is more important than somebody else's. Therefore, they I write and they listen. Right. Gotcha. So, again, 60s, okay, (laughs) that starts to change. And, you know, people started calling it all sorts of different words, postmodernism, because it was, you know, we we don't like that we do that anymore. Um, If you're a white man, I don't want to hear from you. If you're a rich white woman, I don't want to hear from you. If you're um, a person of color, I don't want to hear from you. I mean, we get to the point where nobody's allowed to speak anymore. Okay. Now, that's a problem. So, when people start saying, what do we do about this? How do we come to terms with this? And in that, how do we come to terms with the fact that our entire lives and our public discourse are dictated by Christianity? Mm-hmm. Santa Claus, which is not Christian at all. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. Well, people boil that down to the simplest, shortest way of arguing. For the love of God, man, why are you not saying Merry Christmas? You're saying Happy Holidays. Wait a minute. Holiday. It comes from the word holy days. Mm. Why is that a problem for you? Because holy is often related to Christianity, right? It's still the same thing to me, right? At this point, if you have a problem with Merry Christmas, you should have a problem with Happy Holidays and vice versa, right? So it, it, it gets uncomfortable and weird because we don't start at the beginning, which is my problem with you saying Merry Christmas is that I feel like you're forcing your religion on me. Okay. And I'm marginalized because of that. Gotcha. Okay. I'm not saying this is correct. I'm not saying I believe it. Yeah, this is the this academy. Is, this is, this yeah. is the scholarly, scholarly side of it. So what we started doing was in uh, Germany, um, they had started uh, earlier than the 1960s, the yeah. Frankfurt School. And by the way, the Frankfurt School does not exist. It's not a building. <laughs> I have gotten this. I, so love, I love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I was on a radio show once, and they're like, this came from the Frankfurt School. And I'm like, okay, yes, the theories are from the Frankfurt School. <laughs> but you showing up there. And, and they're like, well, we don't want to have Frankfurt schools around here. And I'm just like, it's, it's not a building. It's not a building. It's a, it's a school of thought. It's an ideology. So, so yes, we're talking it, about, again, idealism. Is. And a bunch of people who um, wrote, like uh, Michel Foucault, uh, Jacques Derrida, um, 
even even people who wrote about audiences in rhetoric that we mm-hmm. studied, um, those people all come from what we call the Frankfurt School. Now, the Frankfurt School in Germany at the time wanted to critique and understand, break apart, put back together for analysis. Yeah. These ideas of marginalized groups and gotcha. heightened groups. So how do you do that? Well, you look at a thing, a phenomena, or a group of phenomena, a, a group of phenomena, or one phenomenon, and you say, how is this impacting the hierarchy? Is it changing it? Is it reinforcing some hierarchy that we don't want? Well, one of those hierarchies is the patriarchy, right? One of those hierarchies is capitalism, right? The idea that we climb over everybody that we can to get to the top is actually antithetical to Christianity, right? You're not supposed to climb over people to make money, right? You're supposed to help people out, right? So I'm, I'm going to go very specifically to uh, religion now, and I'm telling you right now, the Frankfurt School would not go there. <laughs> they, they would be talking about people who were poor, like prisons, right? Prisoners. They would be talking about the history of how we educate, digging into who's doing the educating. Why are we perpetuating certain things and not other things? Why do we talk about white history and no other history or Western history and no other history, Western philosophy, not Eastern philosophy. So they're getting into these things. What language do we use that that reinforces that power? What evidence do we use that reinforces that power? What stories, what narratives, what mythos do we use that reinforces the hierarchy and the power that we see? And is that good or is that bad? As time wears on, and that's where it started, by the way. And in there, of course, is the economic critique. Gotcha. And so what ended up happening were people were starting to read a lot of communist works that were released. Okay. One of those uh, obviously was the, the, the famous theorist Karl Marx, mm-hmm. right? Most people don't think about him as a theorist. They think about him as a, a leader, Yeah. Mm-hmm. but that that's not his main anything. Yeah. His main thing was a theor- theoretical approach to economics about how, capitalism isn't necessarily the best economic system, thereby making him a communist. So people automatically said, oh, well, if you don't think that, you know, if you think that the economic hierarchy of capitalism is bad, you're clearly a communist. But that missed the whole point, didn't it? Because Marx was not talking about an alternative of communism or socialism to democracy and capitalism. He was just talking about the economic theory of communism, right? So, uh, or socialism. And so you, you end up with people blowing off an entire continent of theory, theorists mm-hmm. because they were afraid that they were read, that gotcha. they were read communists, that they were communists, right? So they ignored it. And if we hadn't ignored that, we might have had this conversation in 1975. I was one. Um, but, and you weren't born yet. You guys were like 19 what? We're, we're getting there. So you were getting I was barely born. missed Return of the Jedi. I was born after the first Star Wars. Okay, well, let's just be clear. So, so that you know, we would have had this conversation a lot sooner because people would have said, "How do I apply this to religious studies? How do I apply this to theories about God, about that paradigm, about my ideology of Christianity?" And you would say that application would be, "How do I look at the constructs that are articulated in the critique of capitalistic economics?" And then, or race, or race, and then apply them in these right, or sex, or anything else, right? So, like, you have race, anything that divides us, anything that Mm -hmm. divides us, poverty, race, sex, gender issue, whatever. I don't care. Well, think about this for a second. Prior to the 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 dark era, the dark ages, Mm -hmm. what if somebody had critically thought about what the Catholic Church was doing? What if somebody had said, "Hey"? Um, excuse me, it's not right to murder people for not being Catholic. Yeah. You're talking about 800 years of people being ordered to believe something that is supposed to be um, faith, that is supposed to be 
driven by God's gifts to us. That's supposed to be driven by human beings being kind to each other, representing the life of Jesus, the rules of God, etc. But that's not what we were doing, because I'm pretty sure God wouldn't be going around chopping off people's heads. Sorry, Charles the Great, right? Like, yeah. we wouldn't be doing that. So, the what if I could go back, the counterfactual, gotcha. is a stupid question. The more important question is, well, I'm not going to say stupid. It's a fun academic exercise, but that's for a different day. <laughs> How does this apply now? Gotcha. Okay. The Bible. Mm-hmm. Is it evidence? Yeah. Do you have to believe that it is absolutely 100% true that the Tower of Babel, you know, was 30 feet of cow dung? How long could that hold up, really? Um, or, or what do I have to believe? Mm-hmm. Do I have to believe that um, Noah, uh, if we're going back to the Old Testament, you mm-hmm. know, that Noah had to build an ark? Do I have to believe those things? And the answer to some people will be yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to a lot of academics, the answer is no, you don't have to believe it's true. What you need to believe is that the story exists, mm-hmm. that the mythos is a place that we operate from, right? Mm-hmm. If you believe that, then what? Well, David, you believe Adam and Eve were born and they <laughs> had children, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's where we come from. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get that. I don't buy it. I think it's a bunch of, it's a story. Gotcha. Not a bunch of hooey, it's not that. But it's a story, yeah. right? And it's a story I was raised on. And that's okay, because we both come to the conclusion that we were born with sin, that we are sinners, and that we need to find redemption to rejoin God. Am I right? Yeah, of course. So, yeah. it does not matter if I believe that the Bible story is material, materially true. So, I gave you guys an example of this before the podcast. I hope you're okay with me sharing it. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, one way that we demonstrate this in my house is I've got a 10-year-old stepdaughter. I'm not allowed to, obviously, enforce any religious or beliefs or whatever. And I'm married to a deist pagan. So, kind of interesting mix, right? But she started asking questions at Christmas time. And I said to my husband, I said, what do I do when she asks me who Jesus is? Because <laughs> I knew it was coming. He goes, well, you tell her he's a cool dude who believed that, you know, who lived a long time ago and believed that we should heal the sick and and feed the hungry and help the poor and all that stuff, you know. Um, And so we were in the car together and she had asked if we could go to Who Hot um, for dinner. And I said, I I didn't want to go to Who Hot. So I said, it's too expensive. We can't go to dinner uh, there. And so literally, as, as if like she was like divinely inspired, she had said, who's this Jesus person? Like, it was in the conversation about Christmas. And I said, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And she goes, who is Jesus? Like, literally, like, you know, like a 10-year-old kid would say, who is that guy? <laughs> Whose birthday party am I going to? Um, and I, so I said, he's a really cool dude who lived a long time ago. And he was, you know, he believed in taking care of those who are sick, in helping the poor, in feeding the hungry. And she goes, well, I'm hungry. We should go to Who Hot. <laughs> um, you know, 10-year-olds think that way. We don't, right? We don't think that way anymore because we're too busy being jaded about what does that mean, feed the poor? Mm-hmm. Are you, feed the hungry, help the poor. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and it's that level of, of, of detail that we disagree on, not on the, the and I'm using the word mythos specifically, to get rid of the idea of myth that it's untrue. Forget that. Let's let's not debate true or untrue. Let's debate, is it in the mythos? And if so, then it is true how we function from that point. Gotcha. So I tell you a story. Mm-hmm. It becomes true the moment I tell you the story. Tim O'Brien said that. He's a famous writer. Okay, I, love, gotcha. I love it. Yeah. And so you would say that critical race theorists then began to capitalize on a lived truth. That is a really it's, interesting word you just used. Yeah. It was Did you poor, just see what? Poor way to say <laughs> that. But yeah. But like there was a. We're not capitalizing we, on yeah. anyone here. <laughs> there, <you're>, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good way for critical race theorists to make money from books. Yeah. Um, right. No, that's what they do. Is is the uh, out of that Frankfurt School yeah. out of critical theory was born specific ways of looking for power. So critical theory is really about looking at the power of the hierarchy 
And then, um, you know, Marxism is really looking at the power of the economic hierarchy, right? And then feminists came along and said, hey, you know, women are disempowered economically and in language and in opportunity. Mm, yeah. Right. Which is why most feminists are considered Marxists in, in one way or another. Um, and then people started saying, wait a minute. Uh, you know, people of color are hurt in the legal system. Right. And, and you didn't bring this up, but critical legal studies mm -hmm. says, how does all this happen in the legal system? Gotcha. Right. And that's not a hard question. So critical race theory came after that. Believe it or not, critical legal studies, I think, came before critical race theory because people started saying, wait, you know, more people of color are in jail. Why? We have to actually physically study that material quantification in order to understand it more. Then you start studying court transcripts or, you know, uh, mandatory minimums or whatever it is that you're studying. Yeah. And that's critical race theory. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I was no, going to no, jump like, ahead so, intersectionality yeah. and I didn't. No, I, that, that, you just the, kind yeah. of bridged the gap for Did me I? because this is a good thing. Yeah. So, I believe, so GLAD produced this study. Like, I want to say back in December, right? They come out, and I think, I can't, don't know what, I want to say it was New York Times okay. or Washington I don't, Post. You're asking and they're like, hey, we now see there are more um, gay couples uh -huh. on TV than ever before. But here is what we believe is a, an accurate representation. So the argument then from a group like GLAD would be, look, this is normative, rules of normativity within relationships, uh, marital partnerships, uh, is not represented. And that, on regular television, on broadcast television, and within, you know, now you can't just say broadcast television, right? Right. Within, it's, it's all all within Netflix. Which is social yeah. media. Yeah. Disney Plus, right? So, In the public discourse. <laughs> yeah. So their position would be like, look, that is a form of demonstrating or enforcing norms by yes. a set power structure and yes that is a, there that is a form of discrimination yes that is being perpetuated and maybe some of you don't even see this well and right. we don't even have to use the word discrimination gotcha. yet, okay. because what you can say is okay normativity is a big word gotcha. that idea yeah. that we normalize a certain thing but i think i stole that from uh fuco yeah right like uh, probably yeah. It, so, from somebody yeah because <laughs> yeah. normativity and, and you're not stealing it you're yeah. using yeah. an academic word but normativity is that idea that we make things normal normal by exposing ourselves to that thing yeah. over and over mm -hmm. and over again, however that happens. Uh, the word that I would use instead of discrimination here is marginalization. Mm -hmm. That what we're saying is, unless you are a white heterosexual couple, you're not going to be seen. Mm -hmm. That means you don't exist. Gotcha. You're outside of the public discourse and people don't see you. Let's take Congress for a second. I know this is going to sound... No, hold no, on. Just give, yeah. Yeah, give me the segue. Yeah. So let's take Congress for a second. People complain that there's not enough women in Congress. Why? Well, let's just take the Senate. There's a hundred senators. How many are women? Is it 50? If not, we're not representing the population. That's right. Yeah. Am mm -hmm. I correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's take marriage, right? And put it on so, you know, societal, social TV and social media. All right. Um, you see no gay couples at all whatsoever on TV. Is that representative of society? That would be no. No, yeah. of course not. And that's where that idea comes from, that it's normal and it's normative to be a heterosexual straight couple, cisgendered, all that. And, and, you would and, say and according to who is that normal? Right. And what, what is that? Well, normal comes from that public discourse. So what happens if you want to change that view? You you know you have the first man-to-man um, -man kiss on Will and Grace, I believe it was. You have the first black-white kiss from Star Trek season one, yeah. way back when. Um, talk about like when when uh, you know Bruce Hyde was still alive and on there. I worked with that guy and I loved him, and he talked about that controversy yeah. a lot with me. Um, you know, I, I think that. Uh, I say controversy. Look at what I just did. Yeah, it's a controversy that a black black woman and a white man kissed on TV. Well, that's nothing now, yeah. right? And so I always compare it to generational replacement. Um, just like people replace people in this world, you know, people die off, other people come in. 
Generational replacement works the same way as value replacement, which works the same way as discourse replacement. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a natural occurring replacement that it happens. So what happens if you have the Bible and the Bible is inerrant, the Bible is true, right? And I mean, I could argue with you all day about that one, right? But let's just assume that it's the case, okay. that it's absolutely 100% true, no questions asked. It's God's word, period. Then what happens? Well, over time, values and morals automatically change and therefore your turn when you turn back and look at that bible of absolute truth do you take that and morph it into what the new values are mm -hmm. or do you mm -hmm. say doesn't fit within the value system of the bible we're done mm. well remember time has changed people have changed technologies have changed um the world has changed by God's design, by the way. God gave us these powers to, um, you know, help you live and help me live. Yeah, we always yeah. talk about how we live way past our expiration date. That's right. We both should have been buried a long time ago. <laughs> and, and that's because of the medical advances that God gave us the power to have. So, when we say, am I going to change the Bible or am I going to change my interpretation of the Bible? Mm -hmm. Which is it? which has to change. You're putting yourself into what a false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. Why can't you believe both? And secondly, the answer is pretty simple. It's true. The lessons from it have not changed. The application of it has changed. Mm -hmm. you, we, don't, we don't stone people anymore. Yeah. Why? Why don't we stone people anymore? Why don't we kill women who are divorced because that's we, it's clearly not right it's clearly not christian it's clearly not in the new testament it's not the new promise however how many times have you walked into a bar and watched somebody get hit in the face and then they turn the other cheek and say hit me again i mean we have human defenses in other words there's always a human interpretation so you've done something that most are you ready? I don't think most Southern Baptists have done what you've done with Resolution 9. You've read it. You've read it more than once. <laughs> you've listened to it being read. Yes. Right? So, read to as it, you yes. look at Resolution 9, and of course, we all have pictures of like, you think of, hey, I'm sure when you look at a Southern Baptist, when you hear the word Southern Baptist, like, oh yeah, that guy Dave Van Beveren is annoying in my class. But He God doesn't dance. Him. He doesn't drink. <laughs> what does he do? <laughs> God, but God bless him. You know, uh, he's yeah, in my class. Or, or, gosh, I was so glad to get him out. Now I can be friends with him. Yeah, or, no, well, it was kind of so, yeah, no. uh, When you look at Resolution 9, and you're looking at it as, as an academic who studied critical race theory, critical theory. Like, what do you see that saying from a academic and also because you're a rhetorical theorist, from a rhetorical lens and from a uh, from your perspective outside, how do you see that working? And like, what does it say to you? Right, and that's important yeah. to make sure that everybody yeah. knows I'm not a member of this yeah. church. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm I'm truly outside. Yeah. And uh, most people, you know this. I was a debater. Mm -hmm. um, my father was a lawyer. I was, you know, I've been in Congress. I've written legislation before. So when I saw this, and there were like, you know, 400 whereas, is I was like, mm -hmm. yes, I love when this <laughs> happens because I want to see the argument built piece by piece right gotcha. so the first thing that i was so thrilled to see was the church um or or the the i'm sorry how do i the denomination the denomination yeah. um but the, the is it a committee that wrote this it is or, okay. it's called the resolutions committee yeah. and okay they, and yeah. basically just uh, and even some people who are listening like well who cares about this right right so what happens with the resolutions committee is the president of the southern baptist convention happens in the missouri baptist convention too they select a group of individuals that they believe represents uh, the concepts, the, you know, they are people who are representing the churches. Okay. Right? The president gets to elect these folks. Of course, they get voted on by the whole group, uh, by the whole convention, but the president gets to address these, gets to have these Nominate folks. Them. They're okay. writing, um, and I'll use the term because I just think it's not, they're writing the zeitgeist of right. the, right. what is the sense of the denomination right now? We're making statements on who we are. If people are going to say you're Southern Baptist, like the resolution for like, here's where we are. Mm -hmm. for, here's a good right, example. Right, a right. 1995, the Southern Baptist resolution, probably the most famous one is Southern Baptists say, we should not have 
allowed uh, slavery, we were wrong, right? That was bad. Or then in 2018 or 17, um, the Southern Baptists said, we don't believe that women should be drafted, right? We think that that's wrong according to scripture, right? And so they're making that statement. Now, those statements can then in turn come into eventually a statement of faith. So as Southern Baptists, we have the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Mm -hmm. You want to know what Baptists believe? Go to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Not that, because everyone's going to say, oh, I believe the Bible, right? Well, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 would more clearly articulate that. So a resolution like this is saying, here's where Southern Baptists are. Well, here's where, and here's where we want to go. And here's where we want to go. Which is important because, you know, that's kind of like that's the right. um, uh, when the Vatican gets together and the Pope makes new claims from St. Peter's chair. You know, yeah. it's like, okay, you know, Vatican II was in 1963, 67, I don't remember. 62. 62. So. It, it is sad that you know that. <laughs> um, but it was, it was before I was born. Yeah. And so people were always saying, well, since Vatican II, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, calm down. I don't know what this Vatican II thing is, right? <laughs> well, it's where we do that. Where yeah, you know, gotcha. Catholics, Catholics do that. And the difference is, of course, that the Jesuits who get together and do this, because the Jesuits are the academic arm of the, yeah. the Catholic Church, they get together, all the cardinals get together, and they talk to the Pope about this. It's yeah. not coming from the people. Gotcha. Whereas this is, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's an important thing. I would never see this from the Catholic Church. They would just tell me what the end result was. And, yeah. and that's really frustrating. So, and the Southern Baptists voted on this right, resolution. Which is yeah. fantastic to me. I mean, the first thing I would like to do is having some control mm-hmm. over what I get to believe. And, and you know, mm-hmm. I'm not controlled in the sense of I want to write the rules, but in the sense of being represented by someone who lives the same way I do, who believes the same things I do. So my first thing was, ah, I get to write legislation or I get to read legislation and that's really cool. The second thing is how often do I get to read legislation, let alone legislation from a church, let alone legislation from a church that has the words critical race theory in it. Mm. And I think it's interesting because when you said that you were bringing in critical race theory, I thought, well, that's silly. You're bringing in critical theory. All of it. This is not just critical race theory. This is all critical theory because we're looking at power. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. We're looking at what we've done with our power. Yeah. The Catholic Church remained silent during the Holocaust. Right. Stupid, by the way. (laughs) But they did. And they didn't own that until much later. Much Mm -hmm. like you were saying in 1995, uh, the Southern Baptists said... Well, we yeah. were a little bit past the general understanding of of um, of slavery at that point. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're not talking about like the slave trade right now or anything like that. Yeah. But we're talking about historically slaves in Chattel America. Slavery yes, in exactly, America. Yeah. exactly. And if you don't know, Southern Baptists were born out of the idea. And this is something that a lot of people don't don't know. Mm-hmm. There was one Baptist denomination in the United States. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Southern, there were some Southerners who wanted, and I'm being very general, wanted to send some slaveholders to go overseas to evangelize. And there was a resolution, nope, we are not letting anybody who owns slaves send their money or their people across the sea to do missions work. Not happening. And the Southern Baptists said prior to the Civil War, see you later, we'll do it our, we'll do it our own way. And that is what the denomination that you're reading their article from, that's what they were born out of, right? Okay. There are over 30 different resolutions on race by, now this is, I believe, 31, by the Southern Baptist Convention. And what's really interesting is there were very, if you ever read all of those, and if you get a chance ever, you have a lot of reading. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) And there's a great book written, uh, 2017, 2015, Removing the Stain of Racism from the Southern Baptist Convention. Wow. Some of the individuals who were on that committee authored some of the some of this some resolution. of this here mm-hmm. well and it's interesting because i can make comparisons to yeah. academia social etc the national communication association that meets every single mm-hmm. year uh, suddenly was it was brought to light you would think we would know these things um that disabled um individuals um or other abled individuals were being left out of things mm-hmm. we didn't even notice it you know, like mm-hmm. if an elevator broke in the hotel of the convention, they couldn't get to the convention meetings, gotcha. right? And we suddenly became aware of that. And so NCA started putting out these resolutions to change. Look, it's great 
It's great. It's sad that it took, you know, NCA as long as it did. It's sad that it took the Catholic Church as long as it did. It's probably fairly sad that it took the Southern Baptists who initially said, we're not going to allow slave owners to do this, to come to terms with, race, gotcha. with, with, with slavery in 1995. But this idea of coming to terms with any critical theory position is not late. We're not, you're not behind. Nobody's behind the Catholic Church is behind. Nobody is behind because critical theory of any kind is a constant endeavor. Mm-hmm. It is an endeavor to make ourselves as humans better, okay. closer to God, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. I think that there's some critical theorists out there who might be listening who are wincing at my statement because they're atheists. Mm-hmm. But in the end, If critical theory looks at something and says, the power structure is wrong, the power structure should be changed, Mm -hmm. therefore, here's how we will change the power structure. Mm -hmm. I don't care if that was born out of atheism, religion, of any kind, of faith. All I care about is that you realized that you need to look at something critically and realize mm-hmm. that change needs to be made. So, critical race theory, um, when, when, when I read this, I was like, why are you using critical race theory? Why don't yeah. we just put critical theory? And But it hit me, something important. Mm-hmm. Critical theory includes, uh, and you guys said it earlier, I don't know if it was being recorded or not, because we had that whole story <laughs> that did not get recorded, <laughs> which I'm sure everybody else is happy about, because it was me <laughs> telling the story. But the... the um, the idea that women should not go into combat, mm-hmm. right? Dude, why not? But that's not, mm-hmm. no, don't answer that. <laughs> I don't want to have that debate right now. But my, but it, critical theorists mm-hmm. would say, wait a minute, what you're saying is that women aren't as good as men to go into combat, right? Like gotcha. if we're looking at the, uh, you know, the equivocation, gotcha. right? Yeah. And so critical theory in general would hold you to a standard of you, you have to let them go into combat combat probably but so what we are talking about here is very specific to race yeah very specific to crt and so i understand why you're doing that yeah the thing that you have to understand is that crt being born out of critical legal studies being born out of that was earlier critical legal studies what they did was they made a grid and they said if you are a white you know check white Mm -hmm. uh male check male uh, straight, check straight, uh, rich, check rich, you know, whatever. And they had this whole list of qualifications, right? Mm-hmm. They realized that if you checked off where you were at, it put you at a certain point in the grid. And that's how much power you had mm-hmm. to control your destiny at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not in a legitimate God sense, but in a, and not necessarily, in a, but in a material sense. So, you know, they realized there was a synergistic effect of being a person of color who's poor, who is uneducated, who is um, uh, queer, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you're in trouble because the synergistic effect of one over the other is devastating. So would you say like a critical race, when you think critical race theory, critical theory, uh, intersectionality. Yes, that last Uh, part was the intersectionality part. So (laughs) I would... If I'm looking at this from the lens of, and I'm, I want to be as fair as I can. I never, want no, to, no, no, I never fine. want to misrepresent anybody. Yeah. So if I'm a critical theorist, and this is a worldview that mm-hmm. I, and it, it would you, you would say that it is a worldview. Critical theory is a worldview, is a way to look at the world. Is that how would you would would you that's a, that? yeah. you know that's like asking me is rhetoric uh, an object a way of thinking an ontology you yeah. know yeah. Um, critical race theory is really um, for me it has been uh, a method of analysis okay. more than anything gotcha um, my my paradigm of critical mm-hmm. theory I suppose is is a good word worldview mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. It, it's a lens gotcha. and it's not my only lens Hey everyone, Ray Ray here. This was the first of two parts as we talked with Liz Buzzkirk about the issue of critical race theory and intersectionality. We will continue next time on the next episode. So please uh, take this in and understand the position as we go and move in a world where this is a big issue, um, not just in the Southern Baptist Convention, but 
will be an issue as you talk to people because they are coming from this worldview. So until then, Soli Deo Gloria. <laughs>